welcome to episode 33 of Super States, Practices of Transformation with me, your host, Joshua Peters. Super States explores the connection of trance states with personal and professional growth. And in every episode, we talk to world-class experts, industry leaders, revolutionary thinkers, people who are sharing their journeys, the latest information, different tools, all different ways to inspire you on your journey. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast host, or if you like to watch it, subscribe on YouTube. That way you can stay up to date with new episodes. If you enjoy this show, please give me a five-star review. That really helps the show grow. This week, my guest is Gloria Brain. Gloria is a clinical sexologist specializing in sexual dysfunction, sexual fetishism, and consensual BDSM. Gloria is the author of the groundbreaking book, Different Loving, and I'm excited to have this conversation. Here we go, folks. Uncovering the truth about kink with Gloria Brain. Welcome to Super States. I am here with Gloria Brain. Gloria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. Uh, Gloria, I always like to get the kind of the the basis of what you do. So why don't you just describe in your words what you do, how that makes uh, an impact for people? I would say uh, my main work, the work I'm most dedicated to, is uh, working as a therapist. And also I'm a clinical sexologist, which means uh, I do other kinds of sex-related work, like I've done forensic uh, depositions and offered expertise, and I answer a lot of questions and give a lot of interviews. But my mission, my primary mission, is working with individuals and couples one-on-one to help them overcome what they think are overwhelming problems that will ruin their life. And then I... Uh, help them to see that there are always uh, ways to manage even the most difficult of situation. Or as long as it's not an organic issue, like an underlying health issue, sexual dysfunction is something that can be remedied. I don't want to say cured, but it can definitely be remedied and managed, you know. And that's where the sexologist part comes in, because... I'm still taking uh, postdoctoral classes and still educating myself with an emphasis on keeping up with the science of sex and the medical science of sex. So that's my jam, if you will. And I'm also an author, so I write pretty much a book every couple of years on a wide range of things, but everything, you know, I've written novels, I've written memoirs, and I've written a lot of nonfiction. And all of it relates to just spreading solid information and scientific facts and positive attitudes. Obviously, I'm very sex positive, you know, and sexual self-liberation and things like that. So that's kind of what I write about, although I do it in a lot of 
different forms, which is satisfying to my former English professor self. Because <laughs> 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 I made this vast midlife change from being a poet and a writer to writing nonfiction. And after I wrote Different Loving, I literally got fired from all of my jobs. So I went back to school at that point and got a PhD in sex because the writing was on the wall. I was only <laughs> going to be talking about sex, which was fine, mm-hmm. um, which was actually turned has turned out to be incredibly satisfying, but in a different way from mm. writing poetry. <laughs> and uh, Different Loving is uh, really one of the groundbreaking works on on BDSM that uh, I don't know if there was a book before that on this subject or maybe not in quite the same way anyway. There were books and I, you know, there was a small handful of books at the time, Mm -hmm. but none of the books actually, and there was a a contemporaneous book by Jay Wiseman called SNM 101, but there was never a book that actually took a longer view and being an academic, I did, you know, so I included a lot of history, like the history of sex and took more of an anthropological point of view. I was not in that book. I was not just writing about what my experiences were and how to have a great sex life. I was really looking at a broad-based phenomenon of here is all the sex that people said was abnormal or if you were interested in it, you were a psychopath. Because that was when I wrote it, was at a time when there was huge negativity and tremendous amount of misinformation, if not outright lies, about who who kinky people were. You know, Mm -hmm. and the thought then... I mean, it was just, it was even worse than the way people saw gay people, but it was still, for example, listed as a pathology in the uh, Diagnostic and Statistics Manual that psychiatrists use. Right. So I debunked all that. And so I was roundly rejected by most of the serious places and very deeply appreciated by other people who needed to find answers, like somebody maybe in Minnesota who never had any contact with anybody in this world, who didn't even know that there was an internet they could go to. And at that time, as I said, there was scarcely an internet. Um, And to them, it was just this emotional experience and great psychic relief. And that was the most rewarding part of writing that book, was knowing that I had actually spread facts instead of ideologies to a broad audience. Yeah. And for a 30-year-old book, it's still, I've been reading it, and it's still very applicable, and and it still has really solid information. It does, because, I mean, you can't go wrong on talking about history, because I, I really looked a lot at the, uh, like, the Victorians, 
But I also researched to find out, like, you know, where did body modifications come from? And people were not really aware of it. Everybody always, you know, it's just the curse of uh, the vanity of the current, you know, whatever, uh, whatever generation is the current generation. So technically I'm a boomer, though I'm not a boomer in practice, but, you know, technically I'm a post-war baby born in 1955. So in my generation, oral sex was considered disgusting. And, mm. You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody ever talked about that. I mean, anal was not even on the, it was not anywhere in anyone's sphere, you know, so yeah. a bondage, even though it was known and being practiced by people, you know, people had no idea of its authentic history, which is basically there's never been a time in humanity when these things haven't existed. Right. Right. right? So, you know, um, and similarly, when you listen, when you read the stories of individual people, I think they're eternally, universally relatable because fetish people have the same fetishes and the same worries. And the people that I focused on interviewing were largely very highly functional people. Mm -hmm. You know, they were not the people who were really uh, hating themselves and not daring to speak of what they did. They were people who either had come to terms with or were in the process of coming to terms with, hey, I can be an ethical person and still do these crazy things. Yeah. And one of the things that I really like about the people that you interviewed is they, they range, you know, a wide range of types of people, different careers, you know, male, female, all different types of people are in there. And so mm -hmm. you can really connect with someone by mm -hmm. just the fact that there's so many different kinds of people in there. Right. And, and all kinds of demographics, cause I'm big on equality, human equality. You know, mm -hmm. so I had people who were barely in their 20s and people who were already in their 60s and people who were straight, gay, bi, trans, you know, uh, the whole uh, gamut, I would say, of minority sexuality and heteronorm, you know, typical average um, heterosexuality and people who were monogamous and people who were polyamorous. So, and, you know, by giving each of those voices an opportunity to speak their truths, I think that's part of what made it powerful. And also yeah. what made it powerful is just that people were a lot wilder than anyone had ever imagined. So for a lot of people, it was, you know, they had maybe their own one, you know, little thing like, I like to kiss feet, you know, but then I introduced <laughs> them to this world of, you know, and so their own kinks didn't seem as kinky anymore because there were people doing some wild, adventurous, hedonistic things out there, you know? Yeah. And um, I love that. I really, it, it's kind of interesting because, as I said, I was always like a literature nerd and became an English professor, which I thought was my dream as a kid. But 
when I found sex, it changed everything because I found something that absolutely never bored me ever. No aspect of it was boring to me. I can write about it. I can talk about it literally every day. And that's how I live now, mm. you know? Yeah. So, so I know when we first connected, one of the things that we kind of briefly talked about was the connection between personal development and exploring your kink. So the BDSM world, uh, can you share a little bit about how that's played out for you in your life? Well, uh, it's, you know, one of the neat things that I have found about being a kinky person and being part of the kinky community is that you have opportunities to really find out all about yourself. Because one of my favorite sayings is that sex is experiential, meaning, mm. you know, you can read all the books you want and think about it all you like, but until you have actual experiences with things, you can't understand it, really. Your brain doesn't even process it completely. So the wonderful thing that I have found is that when I started out, I thought, well, I'll do this, but I won't do that. And I'll do this, and but I won't do that. And I'll, I'll never throw a whip, not in my life. I'm, I'm a peacenik. You know, I'm a nonviolent. I love Martin Luther King. You know, I mean, I'm a nonviolent person. That was me politically. And the thought of actually inflicting pain on somebody was at the very beginning horrifying. But you know, I learned about it and what I learned changed me because I became aware that, you know, to a person who loves intense sensation, it's not really pain per se. It's not, ow, stop. You know, it's not going to the dentist, you know? It's not slamming your finger in a car door and mm -hmm. enjoying it. Although, you know, a lot of the jokes used to be like that. You know, if you watched movies, it would be the person who, you know, actually got harmed enjoying it. It's not like that. It's about experiencing the rush of adrenaline that they get and floating off into another dimension. It's not dissimilar from sensory, what sensory deprivation does mm. for you, which is also actually another aspect of BDSM play. You know, if you get into bondage or you use blindfolds or gags, all of that is considered sensory deprivation without having to actually get into a tank of water. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Understanding that there were people that wanted it really freed me. And I had to emotionally understand that by meeting them, talking to them, and seeing how they responded. And then I was able to open up that possibility to myself, morally, you know, because there was now a rationale. And it opened the door to a sadism I didn't even realize I had, you know, that I really enjoyed giving people intense sensation, which again, doesn't mean I wanna, you know, slam someone's thumb in a car door or, you know, make them stub their toe or something, <laughs> you know, but I wanna deliver the kind of sensation that they find 
erotic. Mm. And in that space and with those boundaries on it, it really changed me. I mean, you know, so I grew in many ways. And then there were things I thought I might enjoy that I tried and they were like, no, not into that, you know. Or I watched and I knew people really enjoyed that, but I still didn't want to do it. So I'm actually, despite what people think, I'm not like the most extreme player. There are plenty of people who play a whole lot harder than I do and do a lot of stuff I don't do. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are certain kinds of play, like when it comes to psychological states, which I think mm. relates a bit more to what you're about, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. you talk about super states and, you know, and I think about ego states. So I do with a partner who enjoys that thing, really like shifting those psychological states. So that's exciting to me. Yeah, and you know, really making somebody believe that what we're doing is a hundred percent real, uh -huh. which takes some talent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what, uh, what, what do they get from that kind of an experience? Enormous stress relief, mm. I would say, number one. You know, because they are able to migrate to a different kind of space where they may be low-key aroused or they may be highly aroused, but they get something that is definitely an altered state of mind. Some people call it subspace mm -hmm. and dominants call it top space, you know, um, but it's, it's an, a higher level of yourself. So I know it is a dominant, and for me, it's a place of enormous happiness, bordering on ecstasy, a feeling of amazing energy. It doesn't increase my powers like Superman, but I feel like Superman or Superwoman or Wonder Woman. <laughs> when I'm in that space, you know, I feel a little immortal, yeah. you know, and I know what subs tell me about what they feel, which is incredibly safe, mm. you know, and that life becomes very simplified because they don't have options. They just have to follow. So for some people, that's actually incredibly comforting. They don't have to think for themselves. Someone they trust will make all the decisions or will, heaven forfend, compel them to be unbelievably aroused, you know, <laughs> from things they know or feel they shouldn't be aroused by. And yet somehow it uncontrollably arouses them, you know. Yeah. So it really works when people have a, a modicum of shame trained, trained into them. You know, and we all do. <laughs> you know, I mean, shame comes from society and our social glazing, and who knows? Maybe one day they'll unravel the shame shame genome, also because clearly everyone has a propensity towards it, or yeah. shame would not have the power to hold us back as much as it does in bed. 
And, you know, a lot of the problems that I um, first detected and then researched and developed theory about that was limited to BDSM now as a therapist who specializes in dysfunction, I see that many totally straight vanilla people, heterosexual, monogamous people in a marriage, you know, um, they deal with overcoming shame almost more than anything. Or they deal with, there used to be a lot of um, speculation that BDSMers were all, must have been abused children, which is absolutely not true. We are as likely or slightly less likely to come from an abusive background as the rest of the world. So I find that my work studying minority sexualities has actually helped me unravel a lot of mysteries in just regular sexuality. And I bring those tools to work hmm. when I'm seeing somebody and trying to help them overcome whatever is blocking their sex drive. Yeah, interesting. So what would you say has changed from the most from when you first started doing this work to where you are now? When I started, I was the only out kinky therapist, right? And I was on the internet, so I was global. Hmm. So I had a lot of people from foreign countries calling me. You know, I just had a large clientele. And if you wanted to work on fetishism in a positive way, meaning you probably had been to psychologists who told you you were insane for being into this stuff, you know, and the, I even had, I remember a client come to me and said their psychologist said the way to treat their fetish was to not think about it. <laughs> <laughs> which was so counterintuitive, you know? I mean, psychiatrists are bound to the documents in their profession. And the documents in their profession up until the 2000s pathologized everything kinky, as it had once pathologized things like masturbation or what they called frigidity, you know, a woman not being able to have sex with her husband was considered some kind of psychopath, psychopathia, you know? Mm -hmm. And what has changed is there are now thousands of people like me offering very similar services. You know, they work with kinky people. Some of them are kinky people, so they have a humanistic approach. They don't demonize it. And since then, um, the DSM has changed to accommodate stuff that really is a product of my first book, which is, you know, the normalization of non-binary, non-monogamous sex. Hmm. Non, or really what I call reproductive sex. Because the understanding for many centuries, uh, was that sex is only good or normal um, if you're trying to have babies. But that's not how the human brain is actually wired. And people are still surprised by this fact. They still think, you know, 
certainly in deeply religious and fundamentalist faiths, that sex is really about procreation and, you know, go forth and multiply. But actually, sex, the way that sex works in the brain is so much greater that, than that and so much more nuanced that you couldn't really make that scientific case at all anymore. These days we have all kinds of complementary research from the medical research. So like I wrote a book called The Truth About Sex. It's a trilogy, but the first volume, Sex and the Self, talks all about and tries to normalize masturbation based on what I learned from medical studies, which is that your brain really likes, really rewards you for having orgasms. Mm. You know, contrary to public opinion, it's not like there's a too much when it comes to orgasms. Too much is when you're just too tired or you've lost the mood. But if you're not tired and you are in the mood, it's very healthy for the body. And it's literally healthy um, holistically. It's good for your brain. It busts stress. It lowers rates of depression. It lowers rates of um, anxiety. It's good for your heart. It lowers, they have done innumerable studies now on what the benefits are. I mean, different fields of medicine. So in cardiology, they discovered people who regularly masturbate three times a week are like 40% less to have a heart attack. And people, you know, who do it three times a week are X amount of percent less likely to have strokes, huh. less likely to have reproductive cancers in men and women. Um, but particularly good for the prostate, really good for the cardiovascular system overall, good for the quality of your sick, uh, skin, huh. you know, and we're actually learning new things every day, you know, like for me, you know, there was a study some months back um, about a new discovery really about neuropathways from skin cells to the brain. Another way where it's your skin cells talk to your brain. And this therefore connects to needing to be touched as a human mechanism and sure. how much healthier people are. You know, I mean, in light of what happened during COVID, you can understand why so many people really got depressed mm -hmm. because they couldn't even get hugs. And I'm not talking about, you know, the romantic kind. I mean, just simple hugging your kid or hugging a friend, or being able to curl up with a partner, or you know, seeing people on a regular basis, and shaking hands, or giving them a hug. All of that is actually vital to mental health. So of course, as a sexologist, I then move that into, well then, think about how much more intense it must be to go without sex, you know, because every time they say, you know, so if you, have an orgasm three times a week, it improves all of these um, health points in your body, right? So right. what does it mean if you don't? Does that increase your risk for all those diseases? Huh. One might assume that yes. If this is so much healthier for you, gee, it must be bad 
to go without. So it becomes very complicated because every stage of life has um, different levels of how much and how to and all of that kind of stuff. You know, now that I'm getting old, I'm very interested in uh, elder sex as well mm -hmm. and what happens to the human body in starting in your 50s, you know. And it's a, a different time of life. And from here on, each decade is going to be really different too. So when I work with older uh, clients, that's something that I talk to them about at length, mm. about what you probably won't be able to do, but don't grieve it because there is lots of other stuff you still can do, you know. So you just have to uh, switch it up a little. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that is really fascinating about where we are now in the world is a lot of the stuff can get measured, right, in ways that it yes. hadn't been able to be measured before. Right. Exactly. And I would say that's the biggest change is that, you know, they couldn't even get sex positive studies published before, mm. which is why there are various offshoot uh, organizations which do their own research or encourage new research in these fields. And you can get licensed and credentialed and, and peer reviewed by organizations because as a whole, human sexuality, uh, nobody really wanted to study it. When they did, it was specific to male sexuality. Um, and it did not take demographics into account. Mm. You know, it was really narrow. And if a study was going to prove, for example, that sex is good for you, science didn't want to hear about it. You know, and the government wasn't going to give it money. Mm. And that has absolutely changed. Now they're studying everything. You know, so, you know, every possible angle is being studied. And I love it. Yeah. It's amazing, you know, and I'm proud because there were a lot of theories that I came up with and have come up with over the course of my many years doing this now. And when I would write it, people would be like, tish tosh, bullshit, she's a quack, blah, 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 blah. This can't really work, which people say about hypnosis too, you mm -hmm. know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it, can't, it can't work. <laughs> you know, it's hocus pocus. But... Uh, the reality is once the science completely catches up, no, <laughs> it turns out I was right. I was right about this. I was right about that, all the things that, and that is of course, incredibly satisfying. I'm not getting reward, you know, any awards for it or anything, but there's this enormous satisfaction in seeing new data coming along, affirming something I posited 25 yeah. years ago and thought I had given adequate proof about, but they never bought it. You know, oh, you're looking, you're being selective in what you're looking at. But now the data is overwhelming. So I think more and more people, it encourages more and more people to go in the field. It encourages new researchers to, you know, expand mm. the general pool 
of studies we may draw on. And that's really awesome because when I was writing, I mean, it was really, nothing had really happened since Kinsey. Mm -hmm. And Kinsey was just tortured to death by the IRS. Mm. <laughs> you know, and uh, his work was pretty good. Unfortunately, he blurred the line. So, you know, I look to the past to people who are, who did important and heroic stuff, but I try to avoid their mistakes. Uh-huh. So I don't get involved with <laughs> for one. You know, I don't, uh, yeah. Did you ever have a... You ever have a moment where you wanted to give up? On sex? Well, on the on the specialty that you had created for yourself and, and exploring these ideas. Um, no. Not really. I mean, there have been times when I've wanted to give up therapy, you know. There was, uh, we can all remember that, you know, there were a couple of really rough years that we all went through uh-huh. in the... 2000 aughts, let's say, or, you know, uh, unfortunately, when uh, President Obama was in, we had a, you know, and a, a recession, and I saw my client base going down. And I also felt like, my God, you know, I started out with no competitors. Now, all these wonderful young people are in my field. Mm-hmm. Maybe people would rather see young people. But uh, I'm sure some do. But along with the incredible growth of people working in the field has come an incredible growth of people who now, um, unlike their parents or their parents' parents, really seek out help too. Yeah. Are not, you know, afraid of therapy and not afraid of sex therapy and are not as uptight as other people. So, um, but no, this, you know, this is my life mission. Mm, I love that. And I don't know what I'll be able to do in my 90s if I should be lucky enough to live that long. But I doubt I'll ever stop thinking about this subject. Yeah. You know, and thinking about what other strides. You know, I have no illusions. There's not going to be a time in my life when everybody in the world has uh, come to a consensus that sex is a positive force if you Mm -hmm. harness it properly. It can be destructive, but anything can be, you know? A little gambling, fine. Too much gambling or a gambling addiction ruins your life. Food, wonderful, right? Too much (laughs) or the wrong foods, terrible. You know, and the same is true of sex, you know. You need to be in control of your own sexual choices and your own sex life to have a really good sex life. So that's I don't I don't even know if it's possible on a universal scale because there are many forces dead set against biting that fruit of knowledge. Yeah. What would you say is most misunderstood about uh, BDSM or different loving, as your book 
describes it. About kink in general? Yeah. You mean? Yeah. I think the most misunderstood thing is why people would make that choice. I think that people, you know, again, some people will dismiss people like me as, well, you're sinners and you're listening to the devil, you know? Or people will say, it's abnormal. She'd be okay if, you know, she'd married somebody and settled down. But, you know, I was married for 32 years. So <laughs> it, it, I did settle down to some degree, but nothing changed with my orientation. So I think that people don't understand that being kinky, if, if they have even gotten to the place of understanding that, for example, being gay is probably begins with a genetic root. It doesn't account for all of your life, hmm. but I think that being kinky, being um, transgendered, being more monogamous than polyamorous, I think those are probably, there are probably genetic markers. Now, it's important to note that just because you have a genetic marker does not mean that it sets the course of your life. Mm. There also has to be a component of being of youthful experience. And by youthful, I literally mean what happens from the time you're born, literally mm. born. Mm -hmm. What influences you're exposed to. I mean, most of us, for example, okay, when I was a little kid, I was fascinated by, you know, pirate movies okay. where people got bound to the mast <laughs> and, you know, you know, and there were, you know, or, or Dudley Do-Right. I thought it was a dumb cartoon, but I couldn't get enough of, you know, poor Nell being tied to the rails and snidely <laughs> whiplash and, you know, stuff like that. That's, as a kid, I just loved that stuff. And I didn't know why I loved that stuff so much. But, you know, you saw that kind of stuff in all of the cartoons. I mean, Warner Brothers was really whack. With yeah. the kind of, <laughs> you know, bondage scenes they always had, you know, they always, and they cross-dressed Bugs Bunny, you right. know, and all of that kind of stuff. And why was I so intrigued about it? And I really had no idea. But what I did know is, you know, seeing that stuff was very exciting to me. And when I graduated to like actually watching not just morning cartoons, but TV shows, you know, for some people it was the Avengers. For me, it was the man from uncle where the lead characters, especially one of them, we're always somehow put in bondage by <laughs> evil Russian women, you know, and that was like fascinating to me, you know, and those kinds of scenarios started cropping up when I was uh, in puberty, uh -huh. you know, and starting to mature by age 13. I was really, you know, but I never told anybody. I never shared any of that. I was so ashamed. I didn't know what, you know, and I thought, well, once I meet a boy and I start making out, it'll all go away. And to some extent it did at first, 
But by the time I was in my 20s, I realized that was not where the orga- orgasms were for me. Mm. And I still didn't tell anybody, but I thought a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in bed, you know, like I would just, my body would be receiving pleasure and my mind would be full of kinky things, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that maybe if I had never seen the cartoons, the TV shows, maybe if I'd never bumped into people who, you know, educated me about some of these things in my teens, for example, because in my teens I had more exposure because I peaked at porn and there was a lot of porn that had crazy stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And of course I was fascinated, you know, So I became dimly aware that these were things that people did, even though they were shameful and wrong, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I feel that at some point you need to have some sort of little affirmations that maybe, you know, like let's say you're born gay and in your youth you see an incredibly beautiful friendship portrayed between two men. It doesn't even have to be sexual, you know, but something I think in your genetic makeup sees that and says, there's hope. Hmm. Or one day I want to have that friendship. Mm -hmm. And then you grow up and you go through adolescence and you realize when you think about that, you get a whole new experience of sex. And remember, like I said, sex is experiential. So for example, I have a lot of friends who are close to my age who didn't really realize they were gay. They had gotten married, some of them had had children, and they thought, this will be okay all my life. But they always had that little curiosity Mm -hmm. about what would it be like to be with a man. And then they went and they experimented And it took them to a whole new place of sexual and emotional satisfaction. Hmm. So that even though they wanted to be and thought they should be, or, you know, were altar boys, you know, know, came from very strict religious upbringings and everything, they realized that the kind of holistic, happiness that they felt being with the same sex partner was just worlds beyond what they experienced uh, having sex with an opposite sex Mm. partner. And I can say the the same was true for me with kink. Mm. I was very sexually experienced and it was fun, but nothing ever matched how I felt once I started exploring kink without shame. Yeah. You know. So if if, if someone is listening to this and they are resonating mm-hmm. with what you're saying, what would be uh, what would you say mm-hmm. would be the best way to start to approach these ideas? It all depends on whether they're free or whether they're partnered and if they plan to be committed to their partners, you know, it's it's tough sometimes. Let's say you you married somebody and that's not their thing and they're critical of it or they feel very threatened by it. So for example, I know quite a few, I've worked with quite a few fetishists 
whose partners didn't even know, had no idea. And mm. they never told them until, let's say, five or 10 years in the marriage, into the marriage, mm -hmm. by which time maybe they had some kids. So that, I assure you, Joshua, is quite the pickle. You know, yeah. what do you really <laughs> do about that? You don't want to lose your kids. You don't want to have a divorce. You probably love your partner. And in fact, what you really want is to be able to live it with your partner. Mm. You know, once you've come to terms with it in yourself and you can accept it in yourself. But even getting to a place of self-acceptance in the confines of a marriage with a partner who's disapproving, that may or may not happen. If you see a therapist like me, it may happen. If you're just working on it yourself, it may never really happen, you know? Or maybe if you connect with a larger community. Because one thing that is very empowering for people, but again, it's sort of like, should I eat this fruit of knowledge or should I not? You know, where will I be happier? That's a hard decision yeah. for people to make. But, um, but even I think one of the most important things is realizing you're not alone. No matter how weird or unusual your sexuality is, maybe you can't even find porn about it. Maybe you can't find a story about it. I like to reassure people that if you feel it, it's a human impulse. Someone in the world has it. Mm. If you start a website for your thing, sooner or later, people are going to join. And that's how it was. That was my online experience. You know, I was pretty much semi-closeted. I was teaching at a big school in, you know, at a college in New York. I really didn't want the two lives to mix, you know, but at this, but what I, so I built this group, a support group in 1987 under a handle, you know, and I thought it would be, you know, 30 people at most. If I was lucky, maybe a hundred from around the country. And it grew to 75,000. <laughs> and that was in 1989. Mm, wow when hardly anybody was even online. Mm -hmm. But it just became that popular because there was that much curiosity about it. Now, I doubt that everybody who had signed up was living it or even ha doing it or maybe even interested enough to do it. But they were curious. Mm. They were deeply curious about what it's about and why people who did it looked so happy about it and said good things about it, you know? Yeah. And why they would make these choices. So, you know, human nature is primate nature. So we are by nature extremely curious and nothing makes us more curious than what your neighbor's doing in bed. You know what I mean? <laughs> What's giving you- tremendous sexual curiosity yeah yeah what what gives you hope for the future today's generation i love them i have a lot of people in my practice right now in their 20s which is shocking to me not so much the older ones anymore i guess they've given up but young people and they really are sophisticated they are 
pretty sexually educated all on their own because they've been Googling or binging, you know, or now yeah. chat GPTing mm. everything they can about their interests and, you know, and while they're not finding answers that are tailored to their needs, which is where a sex therapist steps in. In other words, you can get general answers, but you may not see yourself in some of the things people talk about because your needs, your parameters, your morals, your partner, you know, everything, your relationships, your life history is very individualistic. So for example, I can't tell you I have a program for fetishists, I don't. I have a humanistic approach and an existentialist approach. So it's finding out as much sex in related information about them as I can. And that includes everything from how you were raised, what faith you were raised in, whether your parents imposed a lot of boundaries on you, um, what traumas you've had in your life, what dreams have you had in your life, what your libido looks like as a human, because different people have different libidos, you know, so at what time did you start touching yourself, say, and did you continue with that, and how often do you do it now, you know, and people reveal stuff to me that they couldn't reveal to anybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is the path to successfully overcoming any blocks, shame, and it applies as much to sexual dysfunction as it does to fetish. So I can tell you, I don't have like one standard approach. I have certain basic mm -hmm. goals for all, but, you know, like a therapist also has to deal with um drift, clinical drift. And what that means is that, you know, for whatever reason of the, the gods on high, periodically send me a, a whole little contingent of people who all actually have the same issues. Mm. So, you know, one year was the, the fetish year. Every single person I saw had an odd fetish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, a hard to deal with fetish, right? Uh -huh. So that was really interesting. And recently it's been sexual dysfunctions that urologists and gynecologists cannot address mm. because they're actually psychological in nature, you know? And it's really been an eye-opener because I've been working a lot um, on people who really had no conscious traumas in their life, you know, they weren't necessarily assaulted or if they were touched, they, at the time they were children, it didn't feel like anything to them. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that even though it didn't feel like anything to them at the time, it actually still has repercussions in adulthood. Mm. You know, that's why any certainly any direct sexual trauma can affect your sex life. But so can being yelled at and made to feel like crap by your parents result mm -hmm. in sexual trauma, even if they never lay a hand on you. Because your sexual identity and your identity as a human being 
are that closely intertwined. Yeah. So if you have low self-esteem in general, you bring that low self-esteem to bed. You don't suddenly become this other person. You know, if you, you know, if you're shy and self-conscious and think you're unattractive or that nobody will even notice you, you may be like that when you're in bed. Or if you're a person who was yelled at so much uh, by parents that you feel like crap about yourself, well, you're not a person and you never had a voice in your home. You're not going to have a voice in the bedroom either. You know, so that's how um, any and all kind of trauma, and that is where uh, a good diagnostician comes in really handy. You know, somebody who's able to piece together the little bits and create a picture of who this person really is and what they're really dealing with mm. and help them to see themselves through a much more forgiving and lucid mirror. Yeah. Gloria, if people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to either do that or to connect with you? Easy to go to my site, which is my name, G-L-O-R-I-A-B-R-A-M-E.com. And uh, there's loads of information. I write a blog I publish every two weeks, which addresses uh, most of the stuff that I do in my office, work on shame, you know. And I also write about kinky sex for my fans, because a lot of my fans are kinky, you know. So just, but mainly it's... uh, health guidelines and moral guidelines Mm. you know two big concerns in in leading a healthy deliberate let's say um sex life great i'll make sure to i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well thank you and what what's the what's the one insight that you want the listeners to leave with today you are okay as you are And if you're worried about it, there's help out there, if not with me, with somebody else, to get you to a better emotional place about who you are. And that applies whether you're in a wheelchair, uh, approaching menopause, uh, having sexual dysfunction in your new marriage, and you didn't realize that would even be an issue for you, whatever your issue is, or having a fetish, or thinking you're, you're one of a kind, there's nobody else in the world like you, and this is unfortunately how people feel. They feel broken when they're not part of the norm, that you're not broken. You might be different, but you're not broken. And there are people out there who can help you. I love that. Thank you so much for being here today, Gloria. It's been really a fantastic conversation. You're welcome. It's been like a monologue, I really. <laughs> <laughs> but you ask me so many juicy questions. So. I, I appreciate you your juicy much. answers. <laughs>